Well, guys, wow, it is so good to be here with you guys uh, this week. Uh, yeah, man, what a what an answer to prayer it is. It has been such an honor uh, over the last uh, several months as we've been in this discernment process with you, as we have just sought the beauty of what God is doing and just sensed his uh, hand leading us into this season. And I just uh, want to begin by saying thank you. We are, as a family, so excited and thrilled uh, to be here with you uh, and look forward to what Jesus is going to do in the season ahead. And as we're getting settled into Nashville, I have to tell you, um, there are some things that have surprised me along the way. I mean, there were the things that I thought were the big deals that aren't the big deals, and the things that I didn't think were big deals that are massive. For example, everywhere else you go in the country, you know, we're coming from the Pacific Northwest, all everybody talks about is Nashville hot chicken. And I'm learning for locals, everybody's like, meh. You know, I thought, man, I'm going to be all committed. We're going to go try Hattie B's or Prince's, and somebody's going to tell me this is the inside track. But you know what I've learned? Start talking tacos, and the gloves come off. Or, or how about this? I knew, I knew y'all were big. Oh, I just said y'all. I knew. <laughs> wow. That didn't take long. I know you all, you all, love football. And everybody likes the Titans. Nope. But can I tell you, okay, not everybody. <laughs> but can I, can I tell you that where it really starts to get significant is as soon as you start talking about college ball. I mean, I've, I'm learning that there are evangelists right here in this church family because I've already had people telling me that I need to wear orange or red or blue. And I, to be honest with you, I still can't figure out which team is who. I just know that orange is the local one. And, you know, what I love about these moments is these are beautiful opportunities that remind us what the big deal is in life. You know, what are the big deals? You know, when big deals come into our life, it's like life as we know it is radically interrupted. When a big deal comes our way, we, we celebrate, we cheer, we do life differently because of the reality of this big deal that's taking place all around us. And you likely know where I'm going with this. That when we understand the reality of who Jesus is and the power of what he's doing in and through our life, we realize that he is the ultimate big deal that changes everything. And there are a few passages that speak more powerfully to this reality than the passage that we're going to look at in the book of Revelation today. So if you have your Bible, let me invite you to open up with me uh, to the book of Revelation. We'll read in Revelation chapter 1 this beautiful picture that the Apostle John has as a vision of Jesus, as he reads. But before we go to God's word together, let me uh, invite us to go in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come and we look at your word, we, we come up against mysteries that the human mind cannot comprehend in her own power. Lord, we need your spirit to reveal, to guide, to lead, to transform. And so, Lord, I pray that by your grace, you would lead us, you would guide us, you would write upon our hearts the truth of these realities. In your name we pray. Amen? Amen. Let's read together. Beginning in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, these things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen? Man, you know, this, this morning we launch into this series that we're calling uh, Seven Letters to Seven Churches. The first time I read that, I thought, man, this sounds like a musical. But it, the reality is... It, we're launching into a series that I think is so incredibly important for our time in our world today. Because these letters written by Jesus through the Apostle John to his church, I think are powerful messages to a world that isn't all that unlike the one that John originally wrote these words. I think it's helpful to recognize the original context here. The Apostle John is in exile on the island of Patmos. In fact, he describes uh, the reality of his suffering earlier in the chapter when he describes his, himself as one who is a fellow sufferer in the midst of the difficulties and the context of the world they found themselves in. The church was literally facing opposition from the outside and even from within. There was persecution coming uh, from the world around them and... They found even more so that false teachers were arising within the church. We don't know this for sure, but I suspect that at this point, John may have even heard the stories of dear brothers and friends who had already been martyred for their faith. And if I was John sitting there at Patmos, my question would be, God, where are you in this mess? And it's here and in that context, that Jesus begins to speak these words to his bride, and they become a powerful invitation to us today. In fact, what I want to suggest to you is that in this passage, John is drawing our attention uh, to a beautiful reality that I would simply put it is this, that Jesus is being revealed as the king over everything. Jesus is being revealed as the king over his church, over the world, and over his people. What that means for me today, and just so excited, I get to do something I love. I get to brag on Jesus. Because this passage speaks so powerfully to the reality of who Jesus is. And can I say, we, we know a lot of these realities intellectually, but do we believe them? I mean, if we really wrapped our arms around the beauty of what is being said in these passages, literally we would see the big deal that Jesus Really is, And so today, I want, to, I want to begin by kind of digging into some of these images and the power of what's being said here. But before we do that, I think it's important to put these uh, verses in their context. The book of Revelation is one of those books that kind of gets a little bit of an interesting rap. I mean, as soon as we talk about the book of Revelation, people instantly go to images of dragons and, and beasts and seals and horsemen. And, and yes, those are a key part of the book of Revelation, but can I tell you they're not the point of the book of Revelation. In fact, if you study the book of Revelation, what you'll realize is the full name of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
The book of Revelation is all about revealing who Jesus is. In fact, this word, uh, Revelation, actually puts it within the context of what we know as apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse literally means to reveal or to uncover. And what I want to suggest to you is that all of the images that we see in the book of Revelation, where it, whether it be a dragon or a beast or a seal or a horseman, is all designed to point us back to this central reality. Jesus stands above it all. Jesus is high above every obstacle, every opponent that will ever come his way. And it's why I want to suggest to you that the entire book of Revelation is really about revealing Jesus as the one who stands above it all. Jesus is the one who holds his church. Jesus is the one who holds his world. And it's why then I think we marvel at this beautiful mystery that Jesus is the king of his church. Look with me in verse 12. There we're told, and I turned to see this voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them, one like a son of man. Here's John. He's in the midst of the uncertainty and the struggle of life on Patmos, and one day we're told on the Lord's Day, he begins to have this vision. And while he's there, he sees one like the Son of Man. He sees the exalted, the beautiful, the magnified Christ in all of his glory and beauty as much as he could comprehend. And notice where he is. He's in the midst of the lampstands. You know, we learn later in verse 20 that these lampstands are the church and the churches that John would go on to write to. And friends, I think one of the humbling and startling realities that we hold as the bride of Christ is that the presence of Jesus is in our midst. Again, I suspect for many of us, we know that intellectually. But do we believe it? How would worship change if we knew that Jesus was right here in our midst, as real and as present as any of us are in this room. And what John is going to do is he's going to remind us that it's the church, the beauty and the presence and the splendor of Jesus is being revealed, get this, through his bride. And I'll be honest, there are so many times I scratch my head and say, God, what were you thinking? But friends, the reality is God is saying something beautiful and powerful as the bride of Christ gathers together in worship as she lives on mission for him. I love this image when we're told that the church is compared to a lampstand. If you do the studies in the Old Testament, one of the things that you'll discover is the significance of these lampstands. You'll find them in passages like Exodus 24 or in Zechariah chapter 4. And in those passages, these lampstands are built at the entrance of the temple. In fact, ironically, these lampstands are the only source of light for the entire temple and tabernacle. And these lampstands are constructed in such a way so that the light within them was designed to be reflected into that place of worship and into the world around them. 
In fact, strict instructions are given to the priest that this lamp is never to go out. And here's why. The lamp represents the presence of God among his people. And I think one of the great dangers that faces those of us that have been around the church for a while is that we can become so aware of the presence of Jesus that it just becomes a little bit too common, a little bit too ordinary. And we lose sight of this beautiful mystery that the presence of the resurrected Christ is among us. Can we know that? But how does that change our life on a day-to-day basis? In fact, what I find for John is, is we'll go through these letters. One of the things that we'll learn is that this is so fundamentally important that the church has find a warning that if Christ ever steps back, if the presence of Christ isn't in the midst of them, they've lost their reason for existing. They've lost their reason for being. I don't know about you, but it terrifies me that it's possible to practice a Christianity that is absent of Christ. And yet the powerful invitation that we find in this passage is to recognize that though we can do many things for Jesus, the most important thing is the presence of Jesus in his pride. You might say, well, Ryan, what does it look like um, when we live in some of those other ways, can I suggest you two ways, two experiences that I found in my journey that are signs that I'm losing sight of the centrality of Christ in my own life? The first would simply be this. I'm convinced these are two of Satan's greatest distractions that he uses to hide us from the effectiveness of the presence of God in our midst. The first is simply this, what I would call Christianity and. It's the temptation to add something else alongside of my Christianity. It might be Christianity and a political party. It might be Christianity and self-protection. It might be Christianity and pride. In fact, I've been amazed at how many ands I can put on the other side of that word. But one of the surest signs that I've lost sight of the beauty and the splendor of who Jesus is is that I start trying to mix the worship of Jesus with something else. But can I tell you that the second is probably even more pervasive in my life, and it's what I would call practical atheism. As you know, atheism is the belief that there is no God. Practical atheism is knowing that there is a God, but living in such a way that we act as if he isn't really there. It's that place and space in which we know the right answers But the reality of those right answers aren't impacting our life on a day-to-day basis. I mean, friends, one of the great dangers for the bride of Christ is that we make church about programs or activities or even a pastor. Can I tell you, I'll I'll be straight up and lay it out before you right now. As a pastor here, I'm going to screw it up. In fact, it'll probably take me by the end of this message to do it effectively. Because I'm human. I'm mortal. But the gift of the kingdom, the gift of the presence of Jesus in his church is the reminder that the light that we shine isn't about a personality, a program, a name, or anything that has to do with us. 
but the beautiful call that the God of the universe has taken up residence among his people. I mean, when was the last time we marveled at this mystery that Christ is among his people? I love the words that Paul writes in the book of Colossians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Friends, when we realize that, we realize that even amidst a world that is falling apart at the seams, we have an amazing and a profound hope. And it's why then John is going to go on and give us some beautiful and powerful images to remind us that Jesus is the king who stands over everything. Now, as we go into this next section, one of the things that you'll find are some images that in some ways seem a little abstract to us, but to a Jewish mind, these would have been incredibly powerful and significant. For example, uh, we're told that uh, as John has this vision, he sees one clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. It's interesting because this word for the golden robe that occurs in the Greek only appears this one time in the New Testament. But here's what's interesting. If you go to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Septuagint, you will find that it is the primary term that is used to describe the priestly garments. And the statement that is being made about Jesus here is that he is the priest who intercedes for his people. If you're not familiar with the pages of the Old Testament, what would happen is uh, the priest would be one who would go between God and, and, and humanity. An animal would be sacrificed as a symbol of the consequence that sin deserved. And the priest would uh, go and, and pursue a reconciliation with God so that the people could be in relationship with God. And the statement that John is making here is that Jesus is that sacrifice who's done it for us. I I love the words that the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 4 when he says this. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You know, As I look at the journey of following Jesus, can I tell you that one of my greatest fears is that I'm going to mess it up? You know, as I look at my own life, as I look at the frailty of who I am, as I look at my desire to follow Jesus, and yet the ways in which I seem to come up short in my own power, there are so many times that I might be tempted to think, God, when the moment really matters, am I really going to be able to do what you've called me to do? And friends, I can tell you so many times I have learned in the midst of my weakness and frailty that God often does his most beautiful and profound work. And maybe you're here today and you would say, man, I don't know that God could use me. I don't know that God could work through me. I mean, God, if you knew, you do know. I mean, if you all knew where I was, man, there would be no way God could use me. Friends, again and again, the beautiful story of Scripture is the story 
of ordinary people who are used by an extraordinary God to transform the world. What if it's not about us? What if it's not about how strong or weak we really are, but the faithfulness of the one who calls us? And it's in that hope that we're reminded that Jesus is greater than even our weakness, that he is the high priest with the golden sash. He is the high priest that holds the ultimate symbol of authority and power is the king. But he doesn't stop there because not only is Jesus the king over my weakness, Jesus is the king over the uncertainty that the world would throw my way. I love this. He goes on to say that the hair of his head were white like wool, like snow. The image here is, is one of the ancient of days. The image here is the one of one who has seen it all, who has been through it all, and yet still emerges as the victor and as the king. And the power of what's being said here is nothing surprises Jesus. I don't know about you, but isn't that good news? Man, I turn on the news and I'm depressed. I hear the stories of, of wars and difficulties and struggles, circumstances and challenges come my way, and it's like the world is falling apart at the seams. But the beautiful mystery that we are given in this passage is the promise that God is doing something beautiful, even when we don't understand it. You know, in our family, uh, we have a quote that lives on our refrigerator, or actually it's in a box on its way to our refrigerator. And uh, it's a quote by uh, one of my uh, kind of mentors uh, in reading, a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. And he writes these words, that God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we can trust his heart. I love the honesty of that quote because you know what it tells us? Hard stuff happens in life that doesn't make sense. In fact, one of the, I think one of the greatest dangers of Christianity sometimes is this belief that, well, if you just follow Jesus, a primrose path is going to pop up in front of you and all of your problems will disappear into the great beyond. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not the promise of a life apart from pain but it is the promise of a God who is faithful to redeem our every suffering. A God who doesn't waste a single thing and uses it for his glory. And the image here of this head of white hair is the image of one who knows what he's doing. The image of one who is faithful to accomplish his plans and his purposes for us. And it's why then it ultimately um, comes to this conclusion, this crescendo of these descriptions where we find these kind of collection of what I would call power images. Things like Jesus' feet were like burnished bronze. This has been bronze that's been tested. Through whatever circumstance you like it, Jesus, he will still prove himself to be faithful. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Nothing drowns out his voice. He speaks louder than even the greatest circumstance and difficulty of this life. And in his right hand, he holds the seven stars. In his right hand, he holds the church and its leaders. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. This image is that when he speaks, his will is accomplished and nothing opposes it. And his face is like the sun shining in full strength. 
again and again and again. The images that John is drawing us to in this section is this beautiful promise that Jesus is bigger. Again, I would suspect for many of us, we know that intellectually, but can I tell you that I know this to be true? Not just because of what the scriptures say, but because of the way in which I've experienced in my own journey. You know, as we've gotten to know you a little bit, I've had the chance to share a little bit of our family story. Um, uh, a, a key part in our journey is that in 2019, uh, my wife Tammy uh, was rushed to the ER one day with what we thought was a ruptured gallbladder. Uh, we went to the ER. The doctors ran a series of CAT scans. We were thinking she would go into surgery later that day and we'd do a quick repair and we'd get on with life. And the doctor walked in and said, uh, Madeira, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have stage four cancer with metastases to your liver and uh, to your abdomen. And he left. And the silence that filled that room as we just looked at each other like, did this really just happen? We prayed and we said amen and our hearts were in two very different places. Mine was, God, wait a second. <laughs> we followed you. We did everything you said we were supposed to do. And she has cancer? Seriously? And Tammy said that as she said amen, she simply heard three words from Jesus. God is bigger. For the next seven months, uh, we would try a number of chemotherapies, radiation, treatments, and nothing touched the cancer. And in September of 2019, Tammy slipped from this life into the next. You might say, well, wait a second, Ryan. How can you say God is bigger? How can I not say God is bigger? Because she is in a place where cancer will never touch her. She is in a place where difficulty, suffering, and loss will be a distant memory forever. Why? Because she was a good person? No, because of the faithfulness of the God who called her. But can I tell you that those three words, God is bigger, have really become a journey for me in my own journey. Because if God is bigger, what do I do in those moments when God doesn't do what I think he should? When the answers don't come the way I think they ought? When uncertainty and difficulty and challenge come my way? How do I trust that God is bigger? And there came a key point in my journey where God invited me to recognize that life has to be more than just me. He has to be bigger. He has to be the king over not just the easy moments when life goes as it seems, but even in the moments when life makes no sense. You might say, well, Ryan, how do you remember that? Can I tell you, it is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment battle. In fact, it's why I literally have it tattooed on my arm in Greek. It is an invitation 
every day to remind myself of this ultimate truth. That no matter the difficulty, challenge, and circumstance that come my way, the ultimate truth is that Christ is bigger, even if I don't understand it, even if I don't like it. You might say, well, Ryan, that feels really harsh. Well, but, uh, listen to where the passage goes on. Uh, this is so beautiful. It, it's not as if God just leaves us with that reality. He gives us such a beautiful description of who Jesus is. Uh, look with me in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. I mean, John, in so many ways, is responding the way that we would think he ought to in a moment like this. Literally, uh, he's in a place where he is experiencing the unbridled power of God and like the prophets before him. He, he's laid low. And notice what Jesus does next. So huge. He lays his right hand on him, the symbol of mercy and grace. And he says to him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. The beautiful statement that's being made here is that even amidst the backdrop of the darkest circumstances that life will bring our way, we have this promise that Jesus is the king of love who walks through his people, with his people, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Ever. And when we know that reality, you know what it does? It gives us an incredible freedom to do the very thing that John is invited to do. To not be afraid the greater of, of a picture that we have of the bigness of Jesus, the more that we will see the confidence and the joy that we have in him. And again, uh, we know these things intellectually, but do we believe them? I mean, students, I think of, of you at these points in life where you're wondering, man, what does the future hold? Am I choosing the right major? What's the, what's, the, what's the difficulty or the challenge? Or am I getting good enough grades? And all those questions that we run through. What if the greater reality is that Jesus has you and he's inviting you to do the next right thing and to trust that he's bigger? Maybe you're here today and um, maybe known or unknown, you're struggling in your marriage. And you wonder, how are we going to make this thing work? We can't do this ourselves. You're right. But your hope lie not in your ability to make it work. Your hope lie in the faithfulness of the God who walks with you if you have surrendered your life to him. You see, the point that Jesus is drawing us to in this passage is this reminder that you can even look at death itself and have this confidence. He's faithful. He's good. And he will accomplish his purposes for you. You know, 
probably at the most basic level, the question I think we have to wrestle with is simply this. How big is our Jesus? Maybe 10,000 times a day, our question ought to be, how big is our Jesus? In those moments that we're stressing about, how are we going to get all the work done? How big is our Jesus? In the moments that we feel inadequate and ill-equipped to reach our neighbor or our friends, how big is our Jesus? In those moments that we feel uncertain, inefficient, like a failure, the question is, how big is our Jesus? Friends, can you imagine what would happen if we began to live in the fearless confidence of the God who is with us, of the God who is bigger, of the God who is called? I'm telling you, this city will never be the same. And neither will we. You know, I'd even share with you that as, as as I have prayed for God, what will this next season hold? This has been my prayer, is that in the decades ahead, God would allow me the grace to help you grow in a bigger picture of Jesus. Not just because of my teaching, but because of where he's expanding my own vision of who he is. The day by day, moment by moment, in the laughter and in the tears, in the moments of victory and in the moments of weakness, we would all come back to this beautiful place that Jesus is bigger. So here's my prayer. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and as they do, where is, where is Jesus today? inviting you to recognize that he's bigger? Where is Jesus today inviting you to set himself up as the king over your life, to cast aside the Christianity ands and the practical atheism and to recognize him as the one true king of your heart? Will you? Maybe just for a moment, close your eyes and between you and God, Would he bring to mind an area, a place where he would want to invite you to greater freedom, to fear not in the confidence that he's bigger? Oh, Jesus. Lord, we could say you're loving, but love finds its definition in you. We could say you're good, but there is no greater good than you. Words fail, but you never do. Lord, we will literally spend all eternity singing of your greatness and power, and we don't want to wait till then. And so, God, we pray today that you would deliver us. You would deliver us from fear, that you would deliver us not out of the circumstance, but through the circumstance. In the confident awareness that you are bigger. 
and that we have hope in you. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We praise you not as one who is far off, but one who is right here. One who is in this room and calling us and renewing us for your glory. Lord, you're worthy of it all. We praise you in your name. Amen? Amen. Sing together.